Good morning. Welcome to our live stream at Real Life Church. Good to see you guys virtually, family, and all watching friends. My name is Kyleo. I'm a preaching deacon here. And um, as we continue in our time of worship, or as I welcome you to our time of worship today, um, open your Bibles, turn to Matthew 21. It is Palm Sunday. And so Palm Sunday is this time where we celebrate the fact that the king was coming to Jerusalem or that the king was coming to earth. And so as we are in this season, um, I figured we should look at these verses, be reminded of what this season is all about in the midst of all the other crazy that's going in the world. Um, when Rob comes up to preach, he'll be preaching out of the book of Hebrews, continuing in our Hebrew series. But before that, I wanted to welcome you and to share these verses with you. Matthew 21, um, 1 through 11. Now, when they drew near to Jerusalem and came to Bethphage, to the Mount of Olives, then Jesus sent two disciples saying to them, go into the village in front of you and immediately you will find a donkey tied and a colt with her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says to you, you shall say the Lord needs them and he will send them at once. This took place to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet saying, say to the daughter of Zion, behold, your king is coming to you, humble and mounted on a donkey and on a colt, the foal of a beast of burden. The disciples went and did as Jesus had directed them. They brought the donkey and the colt and put on them their cloaks and he sat on them. Most of the crowd spread cloaks on the road and others cut branches from trees and spread them on the road. And the crowds that went before him and that followed him were shouting, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And when he entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred up saying, who is this? And the crowd said, this is the prophet Jesus from Nazareth of Galilee. Now here we are 2000 years later and we know that they were wrong. He was more than just a prophet. He was the son of God. And as we're in this season of coming Easter and it's Palm Sunday, we just wanted to remind you that the king is coming and the king has come. And the good news is the king will come again. Let me pray and then we will continue on in our worship together. Father God, we thank you for those great words that we have just read, those immortal and eternal words, though they are also historical record. They're historical record to the fact that Jesus was a man who lived and they're also historical record to the fact that he was a man who died. But God, we thank you for the spiritual record that these are also the words of a man who lives again and who lives evermore, who is in heaven right now making intercession for us. And so God, in that mighty, strong and living name of Jesus, we come and we ask you to bless this service. We ask you to bless all worshipers participating in it with us. We ask that this worship will make you smile. We pray to bring you honor and glory and praise as we worship you. We pray that you'll open our ears to hear from the pastor. We pray that you will speak through him and speak directly to us. We thank you for this Palm Sunday, that though we may be quarantined, we know that your truth is still marching on. Lord, we look forward to the day where you will fully remove this pandemic from our nation and from the globe. Until then, give us the strength to trust you in, this time, in these times. Give us the grace to believe and know that as the mountains surround Jerusalem, so the Lord surrounds his people. God, we worship you. We adore you. We honor you and we love you. And we thank you in Jesus name. Amen.
Let's worship. Good morning, everybody at home. We're about to get started here, so we would love it if you could join us for worship, whether you're on your couch or at your kitchen table. It doesn't matter. We can still be worshiping as a church family and using our voices to glorify God. When the mountains fall and my tempest roars, you are with me. When creation folds, still my soul will soar on your mercy. And I walk through the fire with my head lifted high and my spirit revived in your story and i look to the cross as my failure is lost in the light of your glorious grace so let the ruins come to life in the beauty of your name Rising up from the ashes, God, forever you reign. And my soul will find refuge in the shadow of your wings. I will love you forever, and forever I'll sing. When the world caves in, still my hope will cling on your promise. When my courage ends, let my heart find strength in your presence. I walk through the fire with my head lifted high and my spirit revived in your story. And I look to the cross as my failure is lost in the light of your glorious grace let the ruins come to life in the beauty of your name rising up from the ashes god forever you reign and my soul will find refuge in the shadow of your wings I will love you forever and forever. My strength and my 
song, this cornerstone, this solid ground, firm through the fiercest drought and storm. What hearts of love, what depths of peace, when fears are still, when striving cease, my comforter, my all and all, here in the love of Christ I stand. Took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless pain. This gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the ones He came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied for every sin. Death of Christ I live There in the ground His body lay Light of the world Our darkness slain Then bursting forth In glorious day Up from the grave He rose again And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his, and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. No guilt in life, no fear in is the power of Christ in me from life's first cry to final breath Jesus commands my destiny no power of hell no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns or calls me
Good morning. We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning. We're going to look specifically at verse 4 in Hebrews chapter 11 this morning as we continue on our series that talks about Jesus being greater than anything else that you put on the other side of that equation. Before we do that, I just want to take a moment and recognize, obviously, the unique circumstances that we're in. This coronavirus has changed most of our lives, most of how we're dealing with each other and, and even specifically how we're able to interact with each other as a church. But thank the Lord that he has given us technology. He's given us other avenues. Uh, one thing that a virus and quarantine and, and all that cannot take away is the ability to pray for one another. So uh, this morning, I want to encourage you with that. Please be taking time to pray for one another. Also be taking time to interact. We are allowing for different avenues to do that. We're using Zoom, uh, online stuff for our missional communities during the week. We're, we're putting out content on Sundays for you like this, uh, where we're able to worship and, and observe the, the Lord's word and also communion and pray and sing together uh, like we normally would on a Sunday. Dr. James Montgomery Boyce, who was a pastor right here in Philadelphia, 10th Presbyterian, has a quote I wanted to share with you this morning. It's this, God's grace is not a way of going around trials, but instead it is a way of going through them. So this morning, understand that the grace of God doesn't take away the difficulties of life. It instead gives you the ability to walk faithfully through those difficult times and trials. So that was a good encouragement for us this morning. It helped my heart this week as I continue to, to um, look for God's grace in the midst of these difficulties. So let's jump into Hebrews chapter 11, verse 4. I'm going to read it for you. We're going to spend a significant amount of time, not just in Hebrews 11, 4, but also in the book of Genesis. So uh, open your Bibles to Hebrews 4, or Hebrews 11, verse 4. Um, for those of us who are regularly with us, um, and this is your church home, you probably have one of these scripture journals. I'd encourage you to turn there, be ready to take some notes, uh, write some things down that the Lord brings to you this morning, uh, that he challenges you with. But I'm going to read Hebrews 11. I'm going to start in verse 1, read down through verse 4, and then we'll start to pull some of it apart this morning. Hebrews 11 verse 1 says this, Now faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. For by it the people of old received their commendation. By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things that are visible. By faith, Abel offered to God a more acceptable sacrifice than Cain, through which he was com commended as righteous. God commending him by accepting his gifts, and through his faith, though he died, he still speaks. This chapter, chapter 11 of Hebrews, is often entitled the, the Hall of Faith or um, the Chapter of Faith. But one of the things we want to focus on today is here in verse 4, the first three verses, remember, talked us through the definition of faith. What is faith? What does it look like? It's the assurance of things hoped for, and it's living a life of conviction based upon those assurances. And now in verse 4, we start to see the examples. What does it mean to live a life of faith? Abel's our first example that the author here is inspired by God to show to us. Abel's an interesting character. He's not on the scene for very long. A couple of verses before the incident with his brother Cain and the whole scenario changes. 
Turn to Genesis chapter 3. Keep your finger in Hebrews. We're going to go back and forth a little bit here. Keep your finger or a, a marker in Hebrews 11. Turn to Genesis 3 with me. We're going to read in a minute Genesis 3, verse 16 down through 21. This is the introduction of what we see life outside the garden being after sin enters the world. And then also the introduction to Cain and Abel, the sons of Adam and Eve. Abel, this biblical character, this, this very short biblical character, as far as volume in scripture goes, is included in this huge chapter about the faithful of God's saints. We don't know a ton about Abel. We know a very little bit, but we know that his actions while here on this earth were ones that were filled with faith and as Hebrews 11 tells us, still speaks. So this is one of the things that a life of faith will do for us. A life of faith gives us the ability to have our lives outlive us. See, when we live in faith about what God has said to us and what he's called us to do, he actually allows our story to go far beyond our earthly time period. See, Abel, in this passage in Genesis, we're introduced to him, and then we're introduced to his first actions in Genesis 4. God asked Abel for a blood sacrifice. We're going to pull that apart in a couple minutes. God asked Abel for a blood sacrifice, and Abel had faith in God's words. So as God asked him, Abel acted upon God's words. Cain, the opposite, did not show faith, however, and was rejected by God. Abel, hearing God's word and acting in faith, was accepted by God. Cain, hearing God's word and acting in other than faith, was rejected by God. God is witness to Abel's faith by accepting a sacrifice, and by this witness, because God accepted his sacrifice, Abel's life still speaks to us today because he was accepted. How is it from this little story that Abel was able to have faith? So let's read. I'm going to read verse 16 of chapter 3 down through verse 21, and then we're going to read um, chapter 4, verses 1 down through 7. Genesis 3.16 says this. This is right after the fall. Sin enters the world God addresses the, the serpent previously. Now he's addressing Adam and Eve. In verse 16, to the woman he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. We see three specific um, outworkings of the curse here. Sin enters the world, and upon Eve, God declares that pain will be part of her life now that there will be desire as part of her life for something she doesn't have, and that her husband will rule over her. These three elements, part of the curse towards Eve. And then in verse 17, God speaks to Adam. It says to Adam, he said, because you've listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, 
and you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread, till you return to the ground, for out of it you were taken. For you are dust, and to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve, because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. So we see the direct outworkings of sin on Adam's life as being the ground is now cursed. He's going to also have pain as he seeks to till the ground and to, to get food from it. He will now sweat. As somebody who's hot all the time, I see that as an outworking of the curse, right? Like before this, Adam, it doesn't say that he was going to have to sweat to do anything. And then lastly, curse the ground pain he's going to experience, sweat is what will bring forth food, and lastly, death. It says, from the ground you've come, from the ground you will return. We, we don't know, we do know actually from scripture that previous to sin entering the world, Adam wasn't going to return to the ground. He was only going to be in that presence of the living God forever, but now he's going to return to the ground, which is death. We also see in verse 21, Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Tag that one. Put a little mark on it because we're going to come back to that verse as we continue on with what Abel does later. Remember the question I asked you. How does, a how does Abel have faith? How did he know what would please God? See, it's brought to us that Abel acted in faith. And sometimes I hear this. I've heard sermons taught on Cain and Abel and and how, how did they know? You know, Abel brought a sacrifice, a blood offering, and Cain brought fruits and things of the field. So how was one right and one wrong? How did Abel act in faith and Cain did it, didn't? Was it just kind of like they tried things out? No, it's not. God makes clear to Abel and to Cain what it is that he's asking of them. How? How do we know this? Scripture is consistent. In Romans chapter 10, as we looked at last week, one of the verses that we pulled apart was Romans chapter 10, verse 17, which says this, where does faith come from? Romans 10, 17 says, so faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. See, God couldn't actually credit Abel with faith if Abel hadn't heard already. Abel knew what God was asking him to do. Cain and Abel both knew what was acceptable to God. How do we know that? Because scripture lays it out for us. What had God said to Abel? And even though we may not have his direct words recorded to Abel, I am confident and I believe that because of Genesis 3, 16 through 21, God spoke directly to Abel through his parents. God uses other people to speak to us. God spoke to Abel through his parents. And what did he say to Abel? In verses 16 through 21 of Genesis 3, God brings out and, and uh, four specific things here. A.W. Pink, who has written a very extensive exposition of Hebrews, labels those four things this way. First, God says clearly to Adam and Eve, that in order for a sinner to stand before a holy God, they needed a covering. See, Adam and Eve didn't need a covering previously. They walked with God in the garden. 
They, they were unclothed. They were naked and, and unashamed. There was no covering that was required, but then sin enters the world. They disobeyed God's commands. And now God makes it clear to them. Now, in order to be here, you have to be covered. Sin requires a covering in order to stand before a holy God. Secondly, that which is of human manufacturing is not a worthy covering. What did Adam and Eve do? We know when they sinned and God came looking for them, they grabbed some fig leaves, they covered themselves, that covering, man-made covering, and they hid from God. And God is saying to them, your covering is not sufficient. The covering that's required is a covering from God. So first, we see in this passage that in order for a sinner to stand before a holy God, they need a covering. Secondly, we see that man-made coverings are not worthy. It has to come from God himself. Thirdly, actually the third thing, first, second is that man-made coverings are not sufficient. Third is that God himself must provide the required covering. Look at verse 21 with me in Genesis 3. It says, The Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. See, this is a huge picture that has massive theological implications going forward. God requires that he gives the covering. And he also shows us exactly what kind of covering is required. That's the fourth thing we see here. That the necessary covering could only be obtained by death. God had to kill an animal, skin the animal, and cover Adam and Eve. Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. Right here in Genesis 3, God preaches the first gospel sermon to us. He preaches it directly to Adam and Eve. He says, there is enmity between you and the serpent. Now, in verse 15, between your offspring and between her offspring, he shall bruise your head, you shall bruise his heel. We'll see this as a foreshadowing of Christ. But this gospel message is preached to Adam and Eve. Now sin's a problem. It has separated you from me. But... I will make a way. God enters in and says those four things. I'll say them again for you in case you're taking notes. In order for a sinner to stand before a holy God, they needed to be covered. Secondly, that which was of human man-made hands was not a worthy covering. Fig leaves weren't going to cut it. Third, that God himself must be the one providing the covering. And then fourth, that the necessary covering can only be attained by the shedding of blood. This gospel message in Genesis 3 is one that I am confident Adam and Eve relayed to their kids. There's no way that Cain and Abel were going to grow up to be adults and not know the story of what happened in the garden. Adam and Eve were so impressed by this they had to have passed it on one of the interesting things that i noticed here also in hebrews 11 adam and eve are not included in the hall of faith in this chapter 
They didn't respond. When sin entered in, and we'll look at this more, more uh, deeply in a minute. When sin entered into Adam and Eve's consciousness, they ran and hid. But because this gospel message has been preached, both to Adam and Eve, and they have passed it on to their children, it's an important challenge for us as parents. They pass this message on to Cain and Abel. And because this gospel message has been preached to Cain and Abel, they know what's required for God. They know what's required to be in his presence. Romans 5.12 tells us this, Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. See, Cain and Abel knew sin was in their life, but they knew it was because of the choice that Adam and Eve had made in the garden. But then just a little bit later in Romans 5, verses 18 and 19 say this, Therefore, just as one trespass led to the condemnation of all men, so one act of righteousness leads to the justification in life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by one man's obedience the many will be righteous. See, Romans 5 is just a recounting of Genesis 3. Sin enters the world through one man, but through one man, justification of life will also enter the world, namely Jesus. Pink also has this quote that I liked enough to include here and want to read for you. It says this, All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Either I must pay that debt, or an innocent one must pay it for me. In order for me to receive that benefit of the innocent one dying in my place, there must be a link between me and him, the innocent sacrifice. I'll read it for you again. All have sinned, and the wages of sin is death. Either I must pay that debt of death, or an innocent one must pay it for me. See, in Genesis 3, what happens is the innocent animal pays the debt for Adam and Eve to be covered in order to be in the presence of God. The animal is killed, the skin is taken, the sinners are covered, and they can stand in the presence of God again. All of sin, the wages of sin is death. Either I must pay that debt or an innocent one must pay it for me. In order for me to receive the benefit of the innocent one dying in my place, there must be a link between me and him. The link is faith. The link between the sacrifice, the innocent sacrifice, and the payment of sin on my behalf, the link between that innocent man and me is faith. This is the relationship between us and Christ. This is the relationship between Adam and Eve and the animal that was killed on their behalf. The blood that was shed because of their sin. This gospel message is straight out of Genesis 3. That's why we know, as Abel is mentioned, he understood what was acceptable to God. He knew this part of the story of Adam and Eve. He knew that as soon as Adam and Eve sinned, they felt shame and guilt, and they had to hide from God. They wanted to hide from God. And in doing so, they saw each other as naked and felt shame in that as well and tried to cover themselves and cover their shame. 
Cain and Abel knew this. They also knew that their own efforts and working at covering themselves were insufficient for God to be in their presence. So God made a way. There was shedding of blood. Therefore, the covering was effective. How do we know that this was made clear to Cain and Abel? It's clear in Hebrews 11 that this message was one that Abel understood. Romans 10 and other places all throughout Scripture show us that faith presupposes a divine revelation. How do we know that? Remember what Romans 10 tells us. Romans 10, 17 says that faith comes from hearing, and hearing comes from the Word of God. So faith presupposes the Word of God and us hearing the Word of God. So therefore, we can very clearly understand that Abel's faith was presupposed by God's Word to Adam and Eve, and that Word being passed on to Cain and Abel. Further confirmation that Cain and Abel had heard what is acceptable to God is in Genesis 4. So go down to Genesis 4, verse 1 with me. I'm going to read the first seven verses of Genesis 4 as we get more familiar with this story of Cain and Abel. Genesis 4, 1 through 7. It says, Now Adam knew his wife Eve, and she conceived and born Cain, saying, I have begotten a man with the help of the Lord. And again, she bore his brother Abel. Now Abel was a keeper of the sheep, Cain a worker of the ground. In the course of time, Cain brought to the Lord an offering of the fruit of the ground. And Abel also brought a firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions. And the Lord had regard for Abel in his offering, but for Cain in his offering he had no regard. So Cain was very angry, and his face fell. He, he literally, his countenance fell. Verse 6, the Lord said to Cain, Why are you angry? Why is your face fallen? If you do well, will you not be accepted? And if you do not do well, behold, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. These seven verses in Genesis 4 walk us through another confirmation that Cain and Abel both knew what was acceptable to God. The idea is this. Genesis 4, we understand that Cain and Abel both did one thing similarly. They both brought a sacrifice to God. See, this is in contrast to their parents, right? Their parents, when sin became conscious to them and they understood their shame, what did their parents do? They hid. They ran and they hid. And they sought to take care of it themselves. Hiding from God, trying to cover yourselves from God. That was Adam and Eve's response. Cain and Abel, the first part of this, they both respond rightly in bringing a sacrifice, right? Instead of running and hiding when their sin became known to them and when they understood that they had been separated from God, they brought a sacrifice to God. Now, we got to credit Adam and Eve with some of this, right? Adam and Eve messed up, and they ran and hid. They thought they could get away from God. 
They tried to cover themselves, but then God made it clear to them, you cannot run. He finds them. He speaks the gospel to them. You will have consequences for your sin, but I will provide a covering for you. Adam and Eve, I am confident from scripture and from what we see, preached that word to their kids. And then Cain and Abel can be held accountable for what they've heard, God's word being passed on to them. In Genesis 4.4, Abel brought a sacrifice. Abel understood that in order for forgiveness and communion and walking with God to happen, a sacrifice need to be made. There's two things that we can see between Cain and Abel here. Between Cain and Abel and their parents. When sin enters into our lives, when we fall short of what God's called us to do and what he has commanded us and given us the power to do, we have a choice. This is a choice is very familiar to us in Hebrews. We have a choice to either drift away from him, run and hide, or we have a choice to draw near to him. Cain and Abel brought a sacrifice to God. It's no different for you and I today. We have to make the choice of coming towards God, knowing his character, knowing what he will do for us, knowing what he's already done in Christ, or running and hiding and trying to cover our sins ourselves. Adam and Eve originally drifted from God at the entrance of sin. They tried to run and hide, tried to cover it themselves. They tried to make up for it with their own works. God stepped in and said, here's the consequences of your sin, but I am going to provide a blood-brought covering so that I can continue to commune with you. Here, Abel, in Genesis 4.4, portrays a greater faith than his parents did. I've asked myself, I did ask myself when I was thinking, why doesn't Genesis 11 start with Adam? It doesn't start with Adam and Eve because of how Adam and Eve responded. It starts with Abel because he did not drift from the Lord at the mention of sin and at the recognition of his own sin. Instead, he draw, drew towards him. Abel here in Genesis 4, let's read his response. And then I've got four, five things that we can understand. Abel acknowledges here in his response. Verse 4, Genesis 4, 4 says this again. Abel was also, Abel also brought the firstborn of his flock and of their fat portions, and the Lord had regard for Abel and his offering. So if you're a note taker, write down these five. Here's one, the first one. First, Abel acknowledges in his response to God that he owned that God was righteous in driving fallen man out of the garden. How do we know that? Because in Genesis 3, Adam and Eve were driven out of the garden. You ever have an experience where something happens maybe to a loved one, and maybe even particularly as children, something happens to your parents, and 
you respond to it. It's very easy. Put yourself in Cain and Abel's shoes. They've heard stories about the garden. They've heard stories about the pre-curse creation. It'd be very easy for them to be spiteful about the fact that they don't get to live in it. They could have responded differently. They could have been angry with God. Why did you have to do that? Why couldn't you just let us stay? They could have asked all those questions and pressed on that, but Abel, in his example, he clearly owns that even in driving sinful man out of the garden, God was righteous. He acknowledges that God in his just in his justice and his judgment that Abel, as a son of Adam, was rightly under the curse and under the world through his parents' sin. See, that's the first step of faith, is owning that God is righteous and we are not. Abel acknowledges that God is just in his judgment, and he acknowledges that he is not holy and perfect, but God is. Otherwise, why the need for a sacrifice? Right? He could have just been angry, could have been upset, could have said, God, this is not right. It was my dad who did this, not me. Why can't I be in the garden? Why do I have to bring a sacrifice? He could have asked all these questions and his heart could have gone away from God. But instead, Abel acts in faith, recognizing that God is just and righteous and he is not. That's the first element we can take from Abel's example. The second one is this. Not only did he acknowledge that God was righteous in driving Adam and Eve out of the garden, but secondly, he owned that he was a guilty sinner and that death was his just due. See, he's heard this story, I would bet, probably every day from his parents. And he had to come to a point in his life where he acknowledged I am a sinner. I deserve death. Because that's what sin brings. Only when we own the fact that we are guilty sinners and deserve death will we stop offering excuses. See, this is a life of faith. Faith doesn't offer up justifications for our sin. Faith doesn't give excuses of why we did what we did. Faith instead says, God's righteous in his judgment. I'm guilty and I'll own it. If we are to live lives of faith, we can only plead guilty to seeking our own glory and interest ahead of his interest who created me. That's the life of faith that Abel exemplifies here. He brings the sacrifice because he understands that God is righteous and even righteous in his judgment to sin and that he is guilty as a sinner and needs a sacrifice to be back in right relationship with God. So first he owns that God is righteous in his judgment. Secondly, he owns that he is a guilty sinner. Third, he owns that God was holy and has to punish sin. Now back in verse 21 of chapter 3 in Genesis, what we see is that God punishes sin, takes out that punishment on an innocent 
animal. He doesn't take out the full weight of that punishment on Adam and Eve. Why? Because they would have dropped dead in that moment. He would have required their life. Now, there were still consequences of sin. The curse, the pain, the sweat, death eventually. All those things are consequences of sin. But in that moment, God covers them by requiring the life of another. The animal dies, the skins cover Adam and Eve. God is holy and he has to punish sin. See, if God didn't punish sin, he couldn't remain righteous. He'd be overlooking things that were short of his glory, things that violated his creation, things that violate his character. See, he has to maintain his character of holiness, which requires judgment, which is never fun. I'm sure Abel went back to his dad multiple times and said, Dad, this doesn't seem fair. This doesn't seem like I should have to live under this. Now, because of Abel's faithful response, we can know that Adam and Eve, we can be confident that they learned their lesson. And they spoke truth to their kids and said to Abel, no, no, no. Don't go down that road. That idea of self-righteousness, that idea of seeking your own glory, don't do that. That's what got us here. Instead, turn to God. He's holy. The punishment towards sin is required. So first, Abel acknowledges that God is righteous in his judgment. Second, he owns that he's a guilty sinner. Third, he owns that God is holy and must punish sin. And then fourth, this is the good news. Fourth, Abel acknowledges that he, that God is merciful and willing to accept the death of an innocent substitute in his place. See, Abel sacrifices of his firstborn of his flock, the best. That lamb died because Abel understood that God was merciful. God is righteous, he is holy, he is just, and he is merciful. The mercy poured out on Adam and Eve was with the shedding of blood of that first animal and the covering of them with the skins. Abel knew that story and trusted the character of God, trusted the word of God. See, Abel's faith was firmly planted on the word of God. Faith comes from hearing. He heard from his parents and hearing from the word of God. God spoke to Adam and Eve. God speaks. That's passed on to people. And faith comes from it. This fourth one, that he owned God being merciful and willing to accept the death of an innocent substitute at his place. We know the picture of this, right? We're in the Holy Week this week. Jesus is the Lamb of God. The full recognition of what Abel does here. And that he dies and sheds his blood as a substitute, an innocent substitute in our place. The gospel of God's grace is applied to Abel. Because of his guilty conscience, he responds with truth. The work of the Holy Spirit brings that hope. 
that God actually will forgive him because of an innocent substitute. See, Abel believes God. Adam and Eve had told Abel about God's mercy. They weren't dead because they sinned. They would eventually die, which is also an act of mercy. And we can pull that theology apart as well. Because to live eternally in the presence of sin is not merciful at all. But Adam and Eve spoke of God's mercy to their children. Fifth, the fifth thing that we see Abel acknowledging here, and lastly, he owns that he looked for acceptance with God by the sacrifice of the Lamb. Therefore, he did, by faith, place the blood of the firstborn of his flock on the sacrifice. He sacrifices the firstborn. Colossians 1.15 later tells us that is who Christ is on our behalf. The first fruits of the sacrifice. The firstborn, the head of every creature, is Christ. See, Abel acknowledged that the lamb that he slain to forgive his sins and placed on as a sacrifice brought to God was the payment between his sins and the avenging justice of God. See, this hasn't changed since the beginning of the world. God requires a payment to go between the sinner and his justice. Because God reminds us of the Lamb of God dying on our behalf, namely so that I might own my sin and hate it, but at the same time, while owning my sin and hating it, I can stretch out a hand in faith and lay hold of the Redeemer. This is what Abel does. I'm sure Abel's heartbroken by his parents' sin. I'm, it's confident, I'm confident here that Abel's heartbroken by his own sin. But he understands that because of the innocent sacrifice, he also can reach out towards a redeeming God. See, we have a lot to learn from Abel's example, even though he's only mentioned in maybe 10 verses here. Abel is mentioned later in Hebrews 11 as a shining example of faith. He heard of God's justice and holiness. He heard of God's anger towards sin. He also heard of God's mercy towards his parents. And he heard of the hope that came from his parents' voices in God's character. That's the picture of Abel that we have. That's why Abel's included in Hebrews 11. Now in contrast, as a warning, let's look momentarily at the life of Cain. In Cain, in Abel we have the first who acted in faith. In Cain, we have the first Christian hypocrite. This is a warning. What did Cain do that was different than Abel? He refused to comply with the will of God, the revealed will of God. He tried to cover up his rebellion by coming before God as a worshiper. See, here's the thing. Cain also brought a sacrifice. He did come towards God. But he came towards God 
with a different sacrifice than God had told him he required. He was a hypocrite. He wanted to look right without doing it. He wanted to look okay with God without acting in faith and obedience. He would not abide, obey the divine commandment. Yet he brought an offering to the Lord. It just wasn't the one that the Lord was going to accept. Cain believed that his case was so desperate, desperate but didn't require death. He believed not that his case was bad enough to require the shedding of blood and could only be escaped by another one suffering in his stead. He didn't believe that from the Lord. So what did he do? He sought to approach the Lord in a different way than the Lord had commanded, and in thus doing, he patronizes God. See, this is the contrast. This is why Cain is not in Hebrews 11. Cain did bring a sacrifice, but he knew exactly what God had asked, and he did something else. He thought his way was better. And even in what Cain brought, look at Cain. Cain went out and he was the one tilling the fields, right? And Abel was the one tending to the flocks. But that doesn't make a difference in what you bring to God in obedience, right? But Cain, he didn't want what he made his life about to look any less than his brother's. What is that a revelation of? Cain was seeking his own glory. He wanted his own works to be righteous. He wanted his own works to be exalted. And in doing so, he disobeys God. See, in Jude chapter 11, this is the way of Cain that's spoken of there. What is the way of Cain? The way of Cain is doing what you think is best instead of what God has said is best. It's a way of self-will, of unbelief, of disobedience. And in the end, it's religious hypocrisy. Looking like you're coming to God without humbly coming to God in the way he's asked. What a contrast from Abel, right? Abel comes humbly. He comes with the right sacrifice. He comes with the shedding of blood, which can pay for sin. We see this striking shadow from the beginning of human history that even today has the church mixed up. See, I'm here to tell you that even today, we have Cain and Abel in the church. We do. This is one of the warnings of Hebrews. There are wheat and tares in the church. Some who want to look right without being right, and some who don't care how it looks, as long as they're right with God. This is the contrast between Cain and Abel. The great paragraph from Pink as well in his exposition on Hebrews says this, Cain and Abel stand before us as two representative men. They had the two and the only two classes which are to be found in the religious world. They typified respectively the two sections of Christendom. Cain, the elder, who's mentioned first in Genesis 4, and therefore represents the prominent section sets forth that vast company who honor God with their lips, but whose hearts are far from him. Who think to pay God a compliment, 
but who refused to meet his requirements. Who poses worshipers, but live to please themselves. That's not the faithful. Abel, on the other hand, hated by Cain, foreshadowed the smaller flock, the members which are brought to, the, to feel their sinhood. They bow to God's will. They comply with his commandments. They flee to Christ for refuge. And they are accepted by God. See, this is the contrast between the two. It's not just that Cain killed Abel. It's that Cain and Abel had completely different views of their relationship with God. It did result in Cain killing Abel. And even right in Genesis says that his blood shall cry out from the earth. And it does today. It does in Hebrews 11. It does for us. His life cries out, even today, as a life of faith. The question that's presented to us then is this. Who are we going to be? Are we going to live lives of faith that fall in line with Cain or with Abel? Or are we going to live lives of hypocrisy and show that fall in line with Cain? The example held up in Hebrews 11 for all of the future to hear and read about is this. Acknowledge that God is righteous in his judgment. Acknowledge that we are guilty and sinners. Acknowledge that God requires a payment for that sin, an innocent death. And then lay hold of God's lamb, Jesus, who shed his blood and gave his life so that we can be covered by his sacrifice. A life of faith thus is this. A life of faith knows that God has, what God has said. As Romans 10 tells us, faith comes from hearing. If you're listening today and you've listened to this whole sermon and you haven't muted it and turned the sound off, you have heard what God says. God says he is righteous and holy. Sin separates us from him. A payment is required. A life of faith knows what God has said. A life of faith also believes that God is just and we are under sin's penalty. A life of faith responds in obedience to what God has commanded. That is the difference between Cain and Abel. Cain knew what God had said. Cain believed that God was just and needed a penalty. But he did not respond in obedience. He brought a different one. God has commanded that we act in faith. A life of faith has the faith that God will do what he has said he will do. He will save us out of our debt through an innocent payment of Christ's pure and sinless sacrifice on our behalf. What better time to be looking at this particular verse than right now? Palm Sunday. As Jesus enters into Jerusalem, this point in his life, he knows what the next week will hold, that it will require his life for the salvation of the world. If you want to leave a legacy of faith that will long outlive your short span on this earth, Abel's faith is still speaking to us today. 
live a life of humble obedience. So that like Abel, thousands of years from now, your story can pass on, not because you were so great, but because you obeyed in faith. That is what this verse encourages us to do. Hear the word of the Lord. Understand our position because of sin. And respond in faith. Acknowledging that even though we are guilty sinners, because of Jesus, we can reach out and lay hold of our Redeemer. And be in the presence of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you are so merciful towards us. We also, Lord, in faith, we thank you that you are righteous and holy, that you hate sin, but that you solved it for us in Christ. Lord, I just want to pray this morning that anyone who listens and hears today from your word, and the Holy Spirit impresses upon their heart what you have said, Lord, I ask that you would help us to respond like Abel, not like Cain, that we would be humble, acknowledging our guilt, laying it before the cross. And because of Christ, we can reach out and lay hold of our Redeemer. Protect us, Lord, from being those who want to look right without being right. Help us in today's world, Lord, as there is much confusion and suffering going on around us. We ask that you would use us like you've used Abel, that our lives would cry out for years beyond us of faith in a God who is righteous, just, holy, and merciful towards us. Thank you for your Lamb who takes away the sin of the world. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I want to invite you to respond to the word you've heard this morning and to the gospel. As we do when we're present with each other, we're going to do today as well. We respond through the singing and adoration to God. We're going to respond through communion uh, in a few minutes after our singing. So I want to welcome you to join in with us. Alex and Esther will be leading us through some songs that recognize the glory of God and what he's done for us. And then after those songs, Kylie will be walking us through receiving communion together. So if you have those elements at your house, we'd encourage you to participate. Uh, all those who are followers of Christ are encouraged to remember Christ's body broken and his blood spilled on our behalf. So will you sing with us even though you're at home? Go ahead and let the Lord hear a joyful noise from you. Thanks. So for this next song, it's called Waymaker. And uh, I think it's a really important song for everybody right now. The chorus goes like this. You are the waymaker, the miracle worker, the promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. So if you could please just join us, sing the song, Waymaker. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, working in this place. I worship you, I worship you. You are here, moving in our midst. I worship you, I 
worship you. You are here, working in this place. I worship you. I worship you. Cause you are the way maker, miracle worker, promise keeper, light in the darkness. My God, that is who you are. darkness, my God, that is who you are. You are here, touching every heart. I worship you, I worship you. Cool work.
and sisters, we've come to our time of communion. As Rob was preaching, my mind was just really rolling over what he said about the fact that we reach out with our hand of faith into God's grace. And it makes me think of my part, God's part. And God's part is he provided in Christ. He provided that lamb to be slain to cover all of our sins. 
And he also provided that lamb's blood to be shed to cover and wash away those sins and to give us new life. And every time we take communion, we celebrate that fact. And so today our part is to observe, is to proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so as you have your elements, we have the body of Christ broken and gladly given for us. And we take the juice as the blood of Christ, gladly poured out and shed for us. This is the body of Christ, the blood of Christ. Take it and eat and rejoice in the gift of the Savior. I want to thank you for joining us this morning and worshiping together with us. I want to encourage you to continue to do so. We'll be here every Sunday doing the same thing right here on our Facebook page um, until this crisis changes. So uh, be sure to not let this particular time period remove you from fellowshipping and worshiping with the body of Christ. So before I give you our benediction tonight, I just encourage you this week also is Holy Week. And for us, we'll be we'll be posting some things on our Facebook page as we go throughout the week, some devotionals, some resources, some ways to recognize this time when we typically actually gather more often together uh, throughout this week, but we're held from doing so this year. I would encourage you to still do those things and stay in those patterns uh, from your home. So be looking for those resources throughout the week. This week, we're thankful for all the ways that God's used his servants, Esther and Alex leading us in music, Khalil's servant here, others who, who've put time and effort into us being able to get the word of God to you this morning. Uh, and we're also praying that this will change quickly and that we will be back together. So for our benediction this morning, I have from Jude verses 24 and 25. It says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Go knowing that he has brought us grace through his son. Amen.